Welcome to the Everything Building Envelope podcast. On this show, we discuss topics relating to the exterior building envelope, such as waterproofing, glazing, cladding, roofing, and more. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For previous episodes, show notes, and bonus video content, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com. Now, here's your host for the Everything Building Envelope podcast, Paul Beers. Welcome, everyone, to our Everything Building Envelope podcast. This is Paul Beers, CEO and Managing Member for GCI Consultants, and I'll be your host today. I'm really excited to have as our guest Chip Merlin, the founder and president of Merlin Law Group. Welcome, Chip. Hey, Paul. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, we've got an interesting topic today, which is all about representation and advocacy of insurance policyholders in disputes with their insurance companies. So um, before we start, I just have one little bit of GCI business I want to tell everybody about. We are actually looking for, probably be a surprise to everybody, that we're looking for to hire um, new employees. And the position that we have open that we would love to have um, applicants for is a senior expert consultant who works with our clients to analyze claims related to building envelope and fenestration systems, including identification and assessment of storm damage or construction defects. So it's an opportunity to join our firm, GCI Consultants, uh, been in business for over 35 years. We're an established and growing entrepreneurial organization. Um, it's a key senior position, reporting directly to senior leadership, and it gives um, the right applicant an opportunity to deliver significant value for GCI's clients and have a direct impact on the continued growth and expansion of the company. So anybody out there has an interest, please, um, please reach out, and we, we'd love to hear from you. So with that being said, Chip, let's get into it. This, this weekend, I, um, I read your book. You're, you're kind enough to give it to me when I saw you last month, and I really appreciate that. And I have to tell you, I really enjoyed it. Well, that, that, hey, I, I appreciate it. I, I hope it didn't put you to sleep so many times over the weekend while you're going through it. Not as if no. reading about insurance and insurance problems is the most exciting thing in the world to read about. I have to say, I have to say it was very readable. I, I mean, I really did enjoy it because everything that you talked about, you told it with a story and it was, you know, kind of real life kind of things and, and super interesting. So maybe it sounds dull, but it wasn't. I, I really liked it. Uh, hey, I, I appreciate that. We we spent a, a lot of time working to try to, you know, fit some stories into it. And certainly I can't you know talk about all stories because of certain, you know, clients you know, privileges and things, you know, that, that go along with that. But, but for those that would allow, you know, me to go through and have a discussion, you know, with them, it's, you know, r- really important. I think that some of my experiences I thought, you know, came across and, and I thought would be helpful. So I'm glad you said that, Paul. I really liked it. And I, but I forgot to say the name of the book. So the book is, <laughs> is called Pay Up, Preventing a Disaster with Your Own Insurance Company. And, of course, you know, written by our guest, Chip Merlin. Really liked it. Do you want to maybe tell us a little more about the kind of what you got had going going on in the book? Well, sure. I'd be I'd be curious from your perspective what you think. Well, I really, you know, I mean, it resonates with me because I've seen some of this stuff myself with um, with the way um, you know things that go on with insurance companies, and you know, from with, with with my experience on the expert side, I see how they use the same firms over and over again on their side, sometimes owned by insurance industry interests. You know, I, I 
they, they just, I don't think that they fairly, fairly assess things. And, and so you had some stories along those lines and you even had stories of, you know, to balance it out a little bit, you even had an interesting story about fraud on the behalf of, um, you know, fraud against insurance companies where you um, had yeah. a client that you said no thank you to. So you've seen and heard a lot more than I have. And um, I thought it was really, really interesting. I'm not, and I'm not just saying that, I mean, it really did. Well, I appreciate you, know, bringing that, and that's a great topic. You know, if, if I had to point, you know, somebody, if somebody wanted to even learn even more about the particular issues with respect to the pressure that insurance companies will demand, and I, when I say insurance, I don't mean all insurance companies, because all of them are not that way, but in some claims departments of many insurance companies, there is a great deal of pressure that's placed upon the vendors of those insurance companies regarding, you know, forensic engineering, you know, to uh, find almost ways, and there seems to be working with the claims department to tailor their opinions exactly with the policy and come up with, you know, answers and opinions that inevitably seem to favor uh, payments for less or, or, or just no payments. I mean, so much so that you know, we've, we've heard stories, especially after Superstorm Sandy, where the account representatives of some of the engineering firms were changing the reports of engineers without their permission, you know, to satisfy the uh, demands of their insurance company clients. And so, you know, today we've got uh, the American Policyholders Association and its association, and Doug Quinn is its executive director, heading up, you know, solely, you know, the issue of, and this is crazy, you know, to think about it, but insurance company fraud against, you know, insurance company customers. And in the claims, you know, part of it, you know, this is where it comes up quite a bit. And, and, and again, I don't mean to disparage everybody in, in, who is out, who's an engineer that works for insurance companies. I don't think that's the way it is. But for, for many, you know, there is a great deal of pressure to perform or you get what I write in the book, you know, deselected. All of a sudden, you're no longer on the list. And, and it's not just with respect to, you know, um, you know, engineers with licenses. It also goes on the pressure with respect to estimators and how much they'll put down. It goes on for independent adjusters and what they're willing to do. And it goes even for the insurance company appraisers. And, you know, this behind the scenes, you know, network is something that I, I do warn about in the book and what you can do to combat it. So it's unfortunately, at least in my opinion, I think it's a, it's a growing, you know, issue in the insurance claim world. And, and one that I'm sad to say is, it's something we have to confront, you know, quite often. Yeah, you know, so the blacklist thing really strikes, hits home with me because I get asked in, um, well, in depositions, if I'm, if I'm representing, you know, on behalf of a, a property holder, do you work for, for insurance companies? And for me, the answer is yes, because I do a lot of construction defect work. Um, and and, and that, that's a different group of insurance companies, or at least different folks, and, and I have that, you know, so, so that is true. But if, they, if the question is, do you work for directly for any property insurance firms? The answer is no. And, and why? Because quite frankly, I've, I'm blacklisted. I mean, they don't want to hear what I have to say. So, you know, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I didn't put this in the book, but there was a company that when I left doing insurance defense work. And I'd switched over and I'd called after several years an engineer that I wanted to use for a particular matter. And, and he said to me, he says, Chip, 
love you to death. Would love to work with you. You know, I know you're out there working and really doing a great job for policyholders. But my company just is not going to allow me to go do work for you, you know, or we could possibly get blacklisted. And then he said, at least honest work. And what I mean by that, if I were to go to work with you, I would have to slant the opinion so bad to hurt your claim and then prove it to them, you know. And it's like, really, is it that bad? But you know, I I get it. And this would have been back in the 1980s. So it's just that as much as things have changed, it's sort of there in the background. It's just that there's a lot more now because of the discovery that's gone in with email, you know, we're able to get some of the um, underlying, you know, actually proof of all the stuff that used to be just literally word word of mouth, you know, type stuff with the, you know, threats of people blackballing, you know, one another. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was thinking about you know, some things maybe we talk about today. One of, one of the questions I was going to ask you, which is on topic, but maybe a little bit steering away is, you know, you've got a wealth of experience and, and you know, you've been doing this for, for, for quite a while now and, and really, you know, the, one of the, if not the leaders in the industry. So how do you think things have changed over, I mean, are things still the same? Or are they different now? Or how, how things evolved over time in, in this property insurance, you know, big loss well, arena? Well, you know, I guess everything has changed, you know, quite a bit. And there's so many different ways that it's changed. You know, we can start with just the internet. I mean, the the way that insurance companies even sell their product, how they sell their product through advertising uh, that goes on the internet, the increase of uh, advertising uh, gimmicks with respect to insurance and some insurance companies even making, you know, how do I say, you see these accidents that seem just impossible. They're almost funny, you know, and yet is that what insurance is about? You know, and it's funny until the accident happens to you and then it's not so funny anymore but you know insurance companies progressive geico a number of them their their marketing studies show that you know selling uh ads to get in front of as many people as possible that resonate with respect to being quote funny and then selling on price seems to be what works for them to gain market share and so you you have a product that is being sold in, in mass market today and a lot, there's a lot of pressure now on insurance agents who are increasingly being left out of the equation. And I think insurance agents traditionally, you know, had that role of helping the policyholder or consumer to select great products at with great companies at great prices. And they're being kind of edged out as the insurance companies keep trying to push this to sell their product almost directly through the internet. So you know, there's been even on the not, not not even on the claim side, but just from the entire you know beginning of the insurance claim transaction, you know people don't buy the insurance product and even know what it says. And they they buy it, they hope they have coverage for it, and so where's the professional helping them out? And and there's just no way that an insurance policyholder, especially a commercial insurance policyholder, could get anywhere close to being able to figure out all the risks, the types of coverage that they would have. The, the endorsements that they might need for their particular business or situation in life. And so, you know, we have a product that people, unlike your apples and oranges that you might pick out at a grocery store, you can't even look at the insurance policy that you buy. And, you know, so it's it's changed that way. And then in the claims handling, I think there's uh, a lot of differences. I think people want to get paid promptly. They're able to find out if they're getting paid properly or not a lot more easier today because of the internet and they can compare what's going on with others 
that are out there. And uh, it's unfortunate, though, that the insurance companies themselves at the claims level now can more closely manage and have actually computers, you know, manage the, how do I say, the authority of the field adjusters so that they force the field adjusters to, you know, through the use of computers and the internet, to really hammer down and not pay what a reasonable amount be and it might be. And, and by that, I mean, a reasonable amount, depending on who you hire, could be, you know, it could be $100, it could be $150 for any particular thing. It doesn't mean it's exactly $104.75, but something reasonable in there, depending upon the quality of the contractor and how it's going to be done. You know, it used to be, that used to be taken care of, and the field adjuster would have authority to take care of those types of claims. But increasingly, that's just not happening. And I think that's one reason why uh, there's so many, there seems to be so many more complaints in the field of, uh, especially property insurance law right now is insurance companies increasingly try to you know gain control and they do have the ability to do so via the internet and there's more claims disputes unfortunately so if we, we could say i mean take an example of a homeowner or a larger type of claim if one was to you know have a loss say a tornado and and they um took it up with their insurance company and got a you know a fast settlement directly from the insurance company, what do you think the chances are that it would be a fair settlement? Probably very little. You know, if it's a it's a full settlement, and by that I mean, how do you know until you actually get out there and start doing the entirety of the work and actually the full, you know, replacement? And I say that, I guess, to be quite fair, it depends on the insurance company. If you were to tell me it was uh, Chubb, Amica, Lexington Preferred, Chances are those companies, because we don't sue them as much, and they keep getting great ratings. Even, you know, we have the speech of USAA, but most of the people really feel like when they get them with USA, they've gotten a fair shake. You know, those types of companies typically have a lot less uh, problems at the claims paying side, and especially Chubb and Amica and Lexington Preferred, you know, than other insurance companies that are more the mass market and are not going to undersell the pricing part so that they have to be cheap on claims. So I, I guess an answer to you depends on who the insurance company is you have, but if it's not one of the more preferred insurance companies that are really having a way of taking care of you. And, and let me give you an example. There is a, a client that we represented in Superstorm Sandy who subsequently had a water loss up in New Jersey, very affluent. And this water loss seeped into the closet and these women had this, the client the, the woman, the wife, had all these fur coats, and Chubb has a, a expert in fur coats come out and look at everything, and she knew exactly what she's looking at. She goes, no, we could send these out. Most people wouldn't say anything about it, and you probably wouldn't even tell, you know, but, but this fabric will never be back the way it is. The type of water that went through the attic, blah, 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 although it you you can you can clean it, but in the long term it will it will be different. An expert will know it's different, and so I'm going to declare these a total loss. And this was of about a hundred and seventy something thousand dollars worth of furs. And I don't know if every company would act that way. And so at the moment of truth, you have somebody who's out looking on behalf of the customer for the full payment and being completely honest with them. That might cost the insurance company more claims time you know, than other insurance companies. Now, certainly that type of reputation gets around because even I talk about, God, what great claim service that was. 
you know, versus other companies are going to fight you nickel and dime. They don't have any experts. and They're not about to uh, have that type of expertise because with that expertise, they may pay more money. How often, Paul, you know, do I give speeches and say, if you want to look at the insurance company adjuster of today, for many companies, and even their claims expert, you think of the three monkeys. You know, they don't want to see anything. They don't want to hear anything from the policyholder about what's going on. They certainly aren't going to tell you all the benefits and, and, and ways of looking at a loss that might increase the amount of claims. Um, I know the insurance, you know, attorneys, maybe the insurance claims department, the adjusters that are listening, you know, to this podcast or hate to hear that. And they're going to say, that's not the way we do it. And good, if that's not the way you do it, that's the way it is. But you can't tell me that if you're in this business, you don't know of the pressure that's coming down from some claims management departments, that that's exactly how they want to have uh, many of their losses handled today. And my mother had a water loss. It was less than $10,000. And it had two different, two different adjusters. I mean, um, engineers came in to look at it before they denied it. <laughs> it's just, it's like ridiculous. It wasn't Chubb. So I just want to follow up. I mean, I did a, um, at the Windstorm Conference, I gave uh, a, a speech with uh, Bill Bracken and um, Steve Badger about how engineers are supposed to go about, you know, peer reviewing to make certain that their expert opinions are accurate. I don't mean written for a client. I mean accurate. And there's a there's a way to go about making certain that one adjuster's opinions aren't written up that are, you know, and the proper peer review and how they're looked at. And um, it was a very good discussion, very philosophical. Steve Badger said, absolutely. If people are writing the opinions with a biased mind, whether it's for the policyholder or the insurance company, it's wrong and could be fraudulent. And I, I thought that Bill Bracken went through the various ethical ways that you do a proper peer review including keeping all the prior drafts. I've had, um, and I'll give State Farm a shout out. I had one time I took a deposition of somebody with State Farm at the high level, and they even indicated that, you know, theoretically, we should be giving our customers the original opinion and why we had to change it to a different opinion and be transparent about it and not try to hide the reason, you know, that there was a change or something like that as if, oh my God, you know, they can't accept it. But, you know, if we're honest about it, because you know, that, that's really what it comes down with peer reviews and why people might change opinions, give honest opinions, and then offer the customer the opportunity to respond with, oh, maybe you didn't catch this, you didn't see these facts and things like that. And I think if you have that type of open mind where you're trying to get to the, you know, the right and reasonable, you know, re opinion, you really are looking out for the customer, even if it's not what the customer hears, at, at least, you know, that it, they've been given the proper treatment, you know, the claims process and the and that all starts with honesty. It really does. That's half the battle is just, just to get a fair shake, isn't it? I can't tell you how, how much I, I've been starting to use that word a lot more. Just give people a fair shake on it. It's How do I say this, though? It, that's difficult to do when it's already started out you know, you know, months, if not years, in advance. And, it, and if the entire way insurance companies look at things is, is to not overpay, you can only go in one direction. And so that's also some of my criticism, like with the uh, claim review process that most of the insurance companies have, they're so into this concept of leakage, which is not overpaying on claims and finding ways not to pay more on, on a particular claim. And if they do, you know, you get these leakage scores that go against the uh, field adjuster. And when they're grouped up against the field adjusters, 
manager. So in many companies, you get six to eight you know, field adjusters and whoever their particular manager is, it, it's a pockmark against him on these quote leakage scores that, that come out. You know, there's, and that when I go there and I ask, well, what about the uh, gold uh, star for somebody telling, you know, a policyholder that they're entitled to more money because they, they missed something and weren't aware of stuff like that. And do you have anything like that? No, of course there is no program like that. The gold stars are given out to people that pay, you know, have the least le leakage, you know, scores. And, and again, it's, so it's always kind of one-sided looking for, you know, lower ways to pay. And it doesn't go for all the companies, but, you know, that's typical of what claims management is today. And it's the way that uh, most of the large consultants that insurance companies hire to give recommendations to the claims department go about teaching them how to do this because it's the most, frankly, the most profitable way to do this. It, as I say, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out it's a lot more profitable to take somebody's premium dollar and not fully pay the claim, you know, than to do otherwise. Can, can you just talk a little bit more about this, what a leakage score is? Sure. So this is a, a term that uh, I first saw in some internal documents from USAA a long time ago where McKinsey and company have been retained uh, by um, USAA to look at their uh, claims process. And and leakage is a, now a term of art used across the industry, and it's not secret or anything, because they've even written about it in many uh, articles that it talks about these are claims payments that the insurance company does not believe has should have been paid. And so you know, when they go through the various you know steps of, of a claim process, they look to see what can change so that they don't make a payment that they think is for, quote, too much? Um, and, and so how do they you know, prevent that? Well, did somebody check the amount that they were paying you know, against an exactimate estimate? Might be one example versus a roofing, a local roofing contractor's estimate. So you, you never accept a local roofing contractor's estimate almost like no matter what versus what's in the exactimate uh, line item. Well, the exactimate line, nobody, there's nothing in there. Go back and check the exactimate estimate to see if it's accurate. You know, and, and after like hurricanes, tornadoes, and anything like that, exactimate estimates are wildly and notoriously um, wrong because they don't reflect the increased amount of demand until sometimes weeks and sometimes months later. And so it's always behind, you know, the curve with respect to what the actual pricing is that goes on. Yeah, that that's one way, you know, just to show that people are getting underpaid and get very upset. It, it could be that as simple as, hey, this house over here, you know, that is having certain materials and things like that should get paid for that. But, oh, you know, this other guy, he lives in a gated community. And just to get through, you know, the, every morning there's like a two-hour wait as every vendor has to get checked off, even work on there. Well, if it's taking the the vendor two hours to get through in the morning time, you know the labor costs are going to go up higher. And this is especially, you know, happens in after hurricanes, major disasters, or even it could just happen in a in, in any type of regular loss that might happen. And a local contractor knowing that will have that adjusted into whatever price he's going to have so that he knows that he can not have his worker sitting out there for an extra two hours a day or whatever it might be. Um, and that's got to be reflected in price. Otherwise, the contractor loses money. And theoretically, you know, the insurance company should be paying. But, you know, those, that's just one of a lot of little 
you know, examples. It could be, you know, hey, did you take uh, the full amount of depreciation based upon a uh, the age of a particular material, you know, versus, well, what was really the condition of the material? And by taking greater amounts of depreciation, we pay less on it. Don't pay any um, replacement cost. If you have a replacement cost policy, that has actual cash value paid first to replacement comes until you get the actual uh, invoice and receipt you know, back for it, whereas many companies will, you know, hey, we'll pay replacement costs right up front. Amik and Chubb have a policy, Lexi Preferred, they pay replacement costs in the full amount right up front, you know, to some policyholders. So there's a lot of different ways insurance companies and and preventing what's known as, quote, leakage, you know, and the claims vernacular go about and, and they have literally have scorecards on each of these, you know, various things, checking out on each claim how well an adjuster might have done, and then they have you know people that are known as leakage experts to do metrics about how much could have been paid versus what was actually paid to say what your leakage score is, how much money you might have cost the company, and they look at that how much you cost the company and detracted from our profits as a result of your own um, neglect or whatever in claims payment by paying too much. Now you know if you were to ask me. The way they should do it is grade, hey, you underpaid, you know, and I never see any pockmark, any, you know, negative score, you know, given against an adjuster for, you know, uh, you know, or any type of score given positive. Hey, you caught something. We would have cheated our customer, you know, you know, on that. So really good, great catch. It's always one way. They always, if, it's almost like they make the person seem like a pariah if they pay a little bit too much to a customer on any given amount. So it's something that's now into claims management, it's ingrained in it, and, and rather than making certain that the customer's not, you know, shortchanged, which heaven forbid that, 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 that what, you know, what's worse for the customer, you know? <laughs> well, there's, no, the there's obviously no point, Right, right. The customer's viewpoint, you know, heaven forbid, don't underpay me what I'm owed, okay? And And I would think, you know, if you're a good, Almost everybody in any type of business is, you know, under promise, over deliver. Try to promise and, and actually deliver what your client's looking for in almost every other field but insurance, where they actually manage to make certain that they're not, you know, over delivering. The whole thing is on underperforming on the claims payment, with many of the companies being uh, managed that way. So that doesn't sound like a fair shake, does it? No. Let's see. It's, it's rigged up front already. The whole management scheme for the vast majority of insurance companies is is first set up on that philosophy of, 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 of above all avoid claims leakage. So let's say that a, uh, you know, somebody suffers a loss. You talked a little bit about the complexity of the insurance policies. I know I tried to read my homeowner, I live in South Florida, I tried to read my homeowner's policy and, um, you know, bad idea. <laughs> I couldn't, it's just, I'm not a I'm not a uh, attorney or an insurance expert or anything like that, and I had a, a heck of a time trying to figure out what it actually. And I don't think I ever did figure out what exactly it said. So, with all that complexity, you have a loss. You've got an industry that you know that where we you know some companies may treat you fairly, others may not. What should you do? Well, I think you know obviously first try to find a great insurance agent who's going to be selling you the insurance because that agent also be there at claims time and hopefully put you there with a with a, a great company. You know, the next thing you should do after that, the larger the loss, 
uh, the more you should be considering, do you need professional help? And that does that mean typically hiring a public adjuster? Um, and sometimes you even have to go to an attorney. But I often re recommend people hiring public insurance adjusters to help out. You want to make certain whoever that you're hiring to do uh, the work, you know, is knowledgeable that while they don't supposed to adjust the claim process, they can understand what the insurance claim process is all about and help by, you know, being there that they will talk with the insurance adjuster, explain the pricing, explain the methodology, if that's what the insurance adjuster is asking for. And as a matter of fact, what many people forget that insurance adjuster is supposed to be doing a full investigation. If there's any doubt about, you know, the bill and the amount that's being, you know, paid for, and they should be asking the contractor who is an expert um, in fixing things up, or if it might be a, you know, a material person or a fur expert, like I gave an example on contents, um, and the insurance company should be doing this right away and promptly. You know, if things aren't going right, and I mean, you're not really happy with the type of service you're getting, it doesn't feel right. I always tell people, you know, and the larger the amount, especially if it starts to get, you know, it, and it depends on who you are. You know, if if you have a home that's a $200,000 home and you have a $50,000 loss, that is really significant. Um, you know, some people have a $50,000 deductible. If, if you have any questions at all, I typically suggest to, to contact a public adjuster or an attorney who's experienced and you can check their credentials. And again, credentials mean a lot in this world, in this day of internet advertising, there's a lot of pretenders, you know, that are out there versus contenders. And what do I mean by that? Anybody can claim to be an expert on the internet. And I often then go back and say, well, how, how do you how do you determine really who who's not? Well, look at their credentials. How long they've been doing this? You know, what's the passion? What are their clients? You know, follow up. What do their past clients have to say about them? Are there somebody that respected in their industry that are really passionately involved in doing whatever they do? You know, would you go to a you need a brain surgery. Would you just go pick out a brain surgeon based upon what brain surgeons might say on the internet? Or would you go look for the person that might be the, the leader in the field, you know, the expert that has the credentials, others that want to learn the techniques of brain surgery from. And so I always tell people to go out and look for the, the best that you can hire at that time and, and, and don't look back. I think, you know, that that type of money is usually very well spent. And often those individuals will give advice about what they need to do with respect to handling claim and often say you might not even need my services this is all you need to do on it or geez you know that you really do badly need my services so you know that's i, I kind of lay that out in the book you know and it's both for contractors for attorneys for public adjusters who to look for even your insurance agent what's the type of person you're looking for uh and certainly you want to hire the best and i give some you know some tips and suggestions how they can find those individuals one of the chapters in, in your book is called When the Insurance Adjuster is You. And um, and you give a, you know, kind of a, a, a hits home example of the elderly couple that had a fire loss and the insurance company had them out picking through the rubble trying to take an inventory of what they lost, which is, you know, bad idea for right. a lot of reasons. Well, and, and then not only that, I mean, so so that that term... What happens in there, I almost call breakage. And people go, what do you mean breakage, Chip? Well, that's a retail term. And that's when the insurance company also almost demands for you to go do all this. And they're not going to do any of it themselves. So often you'll find insurance companies that'll for the residential claims. They'll go out and have 
an expert contractor or estimator or could even have an engineer look at it and they come up and here's the estimate what we think it's going to cost and stuff like that. Well, you know, when you have the contents loss, who's looking at the contents? So the same insurance company, after they, they'll do only half the work, they'll look at the real property and do all these people and then they'll hand pieces of paper to the policyholder and say, fill all this stuff out and you figure out what the cost is, the year, all this kind of stuff. And rather than work with them and, and the insurance company use its own expertise to go through that. Well, you know, after you're on about the 39th page, you know, with 50 items on each page written down that you're filling out, and that's the way some of these claims go. They ask people, they come in and say, you did all this yourself? And they go, yeah, it took months to do, but the insurance company asked me to do this. You know, I just shake my head because it, people don't understand what the concept of the actual cash value means. They don't really understand that. You know, when I start going through, well, so did you include the price of going out and getting it and the sales tax and all these other things? You know, if you buy something this way, you got to put it all together. What about that cost? Because what you lost, it was already put together. Now you got to go redo it again. And there's all these items that sometimes add up another 20%, just a soft cost often on contents that are completely left out. Not to mention... Hey, after filling out five pages, and I know it's going to cost you another 35 before I get done, screw this. Hey, Mr. Adjuster, why don't you just pay me 50% of whatever you think is owed, and we'll just call it a day so I don't have to do all this work. And and that's what's going on in some of the California wildfires out there. You know, it's fine. No problem. You don't have to do all this stuff. We'll pay you 50%. Don't worry about the paperwork at all that we ask you to do. And that's how insurance companies win on the residential contents claims, not even talked about often and and that's a come public adjusters who have you know content experts on staff that can go through this and can help out if the insurance company's not going to do it you'd be crazy to try to do it yourself so yeah that that and not and i remember the example with the elderly couple because they the insurance company didn't tell them oh yeah when you go back into your you know burnt down fireplace you've got all these carcinogenic you know materials out there, all these dangerous things and everything else in the world. And they made a little old lady sit for months going through her fire debris without mentioning how dangerous it was and what she really needed to do to protect herself from it. So, you know, and it's not as if the insurance company's ignorant on it because they teach their own adjusters, you know, how to be careful about it because they have OSHA regulations. Anyway, that's that that was a great example from the book, Paul, and, and I appreciate you reminding me about it. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, that's what made the book, in my mind, what I really liked about it, made it real, was you you, know, you put these stories in with each of these, um, you know, probably boring theories otherwise, and, and you make it real by, by, by telling the story. So um, when, on, on larger losses, the kind of stuff that, 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 um, that my firm works on, and, and, you know, obviously your firm does a lot of that type of work too, the adjuster comes in, puts the loss together, files isn't my thing, but I hear this word all the time, the proof of loss, um, insurance company sends their experts out and you have, you know, say the insurance company says it's worth $300,000 and the public adjuster says it's worth $8 million. What needs to happen at that point? Uh, most of the time you should be hiring, if they have a public adjuster and it's that far apart and the public adjuster can't, you know, bridge that gap, typically that's when they start going to it. People start going to attorneys and ask, advice about what should happen in your particular field. Like most people just don't even think about it um, to do the job, like what your firm does. And there's a, and there, and don't get me wrong. Uh, there is many engineering firms that'll go out there and, and take a look at the building envelope. And, and I mean the entire, and that terms 
also includes the windows and the glazing and things like that. But to do a full and thorough investigation could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, for the insurance company. And if they were to do it in such a way that not only were they going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, but also end up paying millions of dollars because now, uh oh, holy cow, the customer really <laughs> does have these damages that are out there. We just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars just to prove we've got to pay millions. Now, how many insurance companies do you think are lining up to go do that? Not too many, okay? And so what happens is you have huge, what I call chunks or portions of a claim that could and should have been brought as damage that for many policyholders never are brought. And don't kid yourself. If you hire a public adjuster who's not knowledgeable about it or doesn't have the funds to pay for the experts, that public adjuster might not even go out there and do the investigation because they don't have the money to pay for experts. It, it can be very expensive to look at some of these subtle but very you know, large component issues of complex claims that happen to major buildings, commercial buildings, you know, particular condominiums, office buildings, you, know, you name it, you know, skyscrapers. You know, the impact that uh, some major storms or it could be the impact that smoke or heat might have on these buildings really need sophisticated uh, type of analysis in order to find the full amount of damage. And it's certainly not in the insurance company's best economic interest to send, you know, sophisticated engineers out there looking for the damage. Of course, the more they find, the more they're going to have to pay. And as a result of that, you know, we often find, you know, claims that come walking through our door after we redo it, that it's it's not just a small increase, but sometimes, you know, you talk about the $8 million when sometimes public adjusters are taking a swag at it, thinking it's $8 million and it, you know, maybe it's $4 million, but it also could be $24 million. And, and I've had some even very good public adjusters that have engineers go out there and do preliminary analysis but not really dig in enough completely. And when given the full, like, don't spend more than $25,000. But if they were to spend $150,000 worth of engineering costs and spend the hours necessary to really look at it, wow, a loss that might be two or $3 million can end up being 12. And we've had that happen before, and it takes a while for that to soak into the insurance company's claims management. So you need, um... This will sound self-serving, but it's not. So you, you need people that know what they're doing. And I mean, you need people that are truly expert in their field. So you need people that, that are experts in the field and that really know what they're, what they're looking at. And if you've got an elevator problem, you obviously don't want me looking at it, the window expert. You want to get a guy who really knows what's going on with the elevators and, um, you know, roofs. It's basically exterior contents, things like that, right? You know, hey, Paul, my experience is that the best experts get to learn more and more about less and less. And so that, you know, somebody um, who might be a mechanical engineer, he might then start, oh, he's really an expert just on on elevators. And he becomes a really big expert on just elevators versus everything in mechanical engineering. Somebody might be an expert just on on the building, you know, envelope of just the roof system, someone just glass and honestly sometimes on special types of glass you know and, and glazing and and how to you know go about you know doing certain things and so and you know at least in my field i think trying to find those individuals knowing who they are um hiring those types of people means everything to our client and we're we always have to search the 
you know, qualifications, the CVs, and then, you know, work with those individuals because typically a lot of times they're very high demand and, and as well as make certain that their reports are going to be, you know, up to the standards so they'll be even admissible at court. You can imagine that insurance companies, when experts are giving opinions that are going to be very costly to the insurance company, their clever insurance defense attorneys are going to look at every single line, you know, check to make certain every T is crossed and every I is dotted because they try to keep those people from ever um, having the credibility and the ability even to testify in front of a jury. There's battles that go on about that. And at least in our law firm right now, we spend a great deal of our time, you know, making certain that uh, to the best we can, that our expert witnesses are not excluded from being able to testify under the federal or state rules of evidence, which seem to be getting more and more uh, strict about, about these things. And at the same time, we're finding that the insurance company engineers or we're attacking them for their same, you know, for not same, but a, a bias that seems to be similar or the same between many of the insurance company vendors today. Yeah, it's it's complex to say the least. So, Chip, this has really been interesting, and and, and as I said, I really I wish we could have talked a little more about everything in the book, and I encourage our listeners to um, to pick up a copy. It's called Pay Up: Preventing a Disaster with Your Own Insurance Company. Anything you want to close with? Well, sure. First of all, I want to thank you uh, for the ability to come out here. I hope we educated some people. I hope that maybe we can encourage some insurance companies and the executives have a change of heart about the way they go about doing their claims. And I would encourage anybody in the industry who's involved in claims handling to at least consider uh, purchasing, you know, the book. It's not for it's not a really big price, and you can go to Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble, and you can pick up the you know, hard copy or a Kindle edition. And it's even got, if you want to listen to somebody, will read it to you with an audio book edition. So we made it, you know, easy for anybody to go ahead and listen to it. And um, I think it's got some very practical ideas for everybody in the insurance industry. And I really do appreciate the fact that you read through it and some of your very kind, you know, comments about the book, Paul. Really appreciate that. Yeah, well, it really it, w- it was really entertaining, and I want to put a plug in for Audible. Uh, you just b- brought up the you know to make it read it to. What a great way if you got a three or four hour car drive to um, to make the drive go by quicker is to you know get the Audible version and play it through your phone right into your car. I've, I've really have enjoyed that. So anyway, so Chip, how can how can our audience contact you or your firm if they want more information about you know? issues with insurance and, and, and well yeah you know, hey that, that's a great question if you're an insurance professional like an adjuster and you have some question about insurance you can literally go to google put chip merlin blog blog we write about property insurance every single day it's what we do we've written this blog for 16 years now and uh, you can even search all kinds of terms on there you can obviously look me up chip merlin on and you get my information you can even call me on my People are, they're surprised I give out my cell number, but most people never abuse it. I rarely do I get a tel- two o'clock in the morning telephone call or something like that, but my cell number is 813-695-8733. We have about 60 attorneys in our law firm and offices all over the United States and in Puerto Rico with attorneys actually there in those offices. Not These aren't just make-believe offices that people put there. No, we have actual attorneys that... Uh, limit their practice to representation of policyholders with insurance claim disputes. And uh, the main office in Tampa is 813-229-1000. But 
you know, on the internet, I, I would encourage people to to look up our firm, the qualifications we've got. They can always look me up, and and the easiest way for them is they people text me or call me on my cell phone again at eight one three six nine five eight seven three three. And if you want to call again, our main number is eight one three two two nine one thousand. But again, we have offices from San Francisco out to Puerto Rico, from uh, Phoenix and Los Angeles, all the way up to Red Bank, New Jersey, and up in Chicago down. Yeah, we just have offices all over you know, with this, with actual attorneys practicing and in, in, in doing this uh, for a living. So I appreciate, Paul, the, your opportunity for me to tell that to our audience. And uh, if, if the people ever have a need, give us a phone call. We're here to help and educate people. Super. And thanks again so much for, for coming on. Paul, thank you very much for having me as your guest today. You got it. So I would like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast today, and I invite you to take a further look at GCI Consultant Services on our website at www.gciconsultants.com. You can also reach us at 877-740-9990 to discuss any of your building envelope needs. Thanks once again. I look forward to talking with you next time on our Everything Building Envelope podcast. So long. Thanks for joining us today. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more information on the Everything Building Envelope, previous episodes, show notes, bonus video content, and much more, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com.